Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 8 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. We've got an agenda today that is, as usual, action-packed. Um, we have a quick CPI update, so we're going to talk about inflation for just a brief moment. I know we have covered that on probably every single episode, so just a quick update um, on that. Uh, we had a listener question come in on, what if things continue to get worse? And so we went to the, the history books to try to see uh, an answer, or try to get an answer to that question related to forward-looking market returns and this sort of thing. Um, uh, we had another question come in on how do midterms affect markets. So we've got you know, elections coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then finally, some data on recoveries during recessionary periods. So a lot to cover today. Um, and uh, we will try to keep this in within our uh, our normal time slot. How how's it going today? It's going good as always. Um, I know we need to probably address my response. You know, previous episodes where if the market's up, I'm doing great, and the market's down, I'm, I'm uh, down in the dumps. But um, you know, we we got to be more cognizant about, especially me, about not letting markets dictate how I feel because generally they don't. Right, um, up markets are great, but down markets give us opportunity. Either buying low, which is awesome, um, but the, the latest market pullback allowed us for any invested clients, right, have the ability to tax loss harvest, and that's been that's been pretty beneficial. I know a lot of the opportunities have come uh, pretty frequently this year, but again. In, in a full market cycle, there's not a lot of opportunities to tax loss harvest consistently. It's a good point. I know I know that uh, you and our investment team have been really busy in the last two weeks executing these tax loss harvests across all of our clients. Uh, and we also have a number of clients that are consistently contributing to their accounts, whether it be monthly or quarterly, uh, annually, whatever the cadence might be. And, you know, buying at today's prices is, is just simply good long term. So I know that you guys have been busy over there and on your side of the business. Yeah, but everything we've been working for has been, you know, for the benefit of the clients. And yeah, yeah tax loss harvesting is just temporarily shifting losses for this tax year, right? So typically we'll buy a very similar investment. And if the market does rebound in the middle of a tax loss harvest, that's, that's all the better. We lock in a loss and all we the capture the, yeah, the rebound. So we're going to come back to this on a future topic. Um, we're going to do uh, either a one- or two-part episode on uh, investment items to, to take advantage of during markets like this and then financial planning items to take advantage of during markets and economic times like this. And so we'll unpack a little bit further next time. What is tax loss harvesting? How does it work? How do capital gains work and capital losses, and how does it relate to your tax return? So um, a lot of the stuff that we're planning in the coming oh, what episodes. what a tease. Yeah. <laughs> so, but let's come back to a little tease. So let's come back uh, to today because otherwise we're going to go down a 15-minute tangent like we normally do. So quick CPI update. What do you got for us? 
Yeah, CPI, Consumer Price Index, uh, we, we've broken down that versus a PCE. Uh, CPI is a fixed basket, just for everyone's reminder, and that fixed basket does not change, but the prices within that basket do. So whether you're buying a washer or dryer or not, that's going to show up on CPI if Home Depot sets a price for a washer or dryer. So uh, CPI came in, and it came in hotter than everyone expected. So <clears throat> the market reacted, and there's a lot more room for the Fed to raise rates to cool inflation. This CPI report showed inflation not only in cars and in housing, but inflation is starting to seep into other parts of our economy, uh, specifically food, which everyone knows a price. Grocery store prices are higher. I know Chris has a story about cauliflower. Um, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, everything is more expensive, right? Not just cauliflower. Eggs are coming down, which is pretty good news. I and texted meat, you the other yeah. day. I think eggs went down by 50 cents, and I was, <laughs> I was pretty stoked. It's going the right direction. Yeah, 50 cents for eggs in That's terms a lot. Of, yeah, because yeah. they're already low price. That's a bigger yeah, percentage. Yeah. yeah. And uh, sorry for the tangent, guys. And going back to, yeah, electricity, utilities, up, up, month over month, um, new vehicles up slightly, and then used vehicles starting continuance downtrend with a big, big decrease from last month, 1.1%. Mm. Um, and so, that's monthly. So that's not an annualized rate. That is a monthly 1% a month. Yeah, yeah. So that continues with several more months of that. We're, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're back to even. It's because mm -hmm. uh, huh. uh, compared to a year ago, used cars and trucks are still about 7.2% above over a year ago. So um, <clears throat> the market reacted okay to this report, though, right? So what, what was the silver lining in all of this? Uh, like we mentioned, the market has a really eerie way of pricing everything in. Hmm. And it's this really didn't surprise everyone. So um, even though the official CPI came out on X date, uh, the the Atlanta Fed publishes a CPI now that gives really relative up to date pricing information, regardless of when the official CPI data comes out. So no surprises. I don't think we've we've seen a real real surprise in the last half of this quarter or the last half of this year so far because mm -hmm. everyone's so hyper aware of where inflation's going, where interest rates are going, and none of it's surprising. Hmm. Got it. So the market is anticipating, or we call that pricing in, the market's pricing in uh, a certain number, and then if it actually surprises to the still going up but not up as much, less bad, market kind of shrugs and you're like yeah cool we priced that in feels yeah. good yeah uh mm. admittedly the the cpi report was bad but the market responded really positively it's pretty okay yeah 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 so just shows you how a lot of this trading activity is unpredictable in the short term and trying to guess when to buy in you would have missed a pretty good update yeah, well, and remember, you know, markets hate uncertainty. So the more uncertainty there is, the more volatility there is. And we've had more 2% plus movement days this year than ever before. Uh, I don't know if we've crested 14. Um, I believe we were at 14 last time, and the average year has two. So um, we are just in the midst of a year of uncertainty, and that's why markets keep moving around. Uh, given this, this inflation print, you know, maybe that's just a little bit more certain, which is why the market said, eh, cool, 
uh, you know, not as big of a deal. <laughs> yeah, the market says cool. Uh, real people, well, right? Yeah, they they're not happy, and I guess we'll get to that too with the elections. Let's go there. So uh, <laughs> let's let's start with what if things continue to get worse? So I love this question. Thank you for sending this in, listener. Um, you've got some data here on on you know the risk of being wrong, the risk of being right, and. Uh, and some good charts here, so I'll let you kick it off. Yeah, yeah. I think the crux of that question, what if things get worse, is really rooted in, hey, what if what if we really have a 70s-style type of pullback? So um, <clears throat> the 70s up until uh, 1973, which was the oil embargo, we had a, quite a few things building up to that. So first were the Nixon shocks, where he had his – um, Fed chair's ear, uh, Arthur Burns, where, hey, Arthur, I need to score political points. you got to keep money policies loose, which is, you know, sounds eerily familiar, right? This is a similar conversation we had in 2018 mm-hmm. where politicians don't like pullbacks. They, they want prosperity, right? That makes sense. They want to get voted back in. So that created, I don't know, a de facto bubble in terms of of money sloshing around. Uh, the next one was the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. I know I'm bringing out a weird, you know, esoteric financial thing, but think of it as a, a monetary agreement across countries across the world where, you know, that, fall, that breaks down. It's not the end of the world, but it's, to Chris's point, more uncertainty. And then on top of that, 1973, the oil embargo. So you, you bring all those three things together. And you got uh, 48% drawdown, right? Hmm. <clears throat> so that's if we repeat the, the, the events of the 1970s. I don't think we have two of those components. Um, the IMF, which replaced the Bretton Woods system, is pretty stable. But hmm. the U.S. is giving you know, stress to other countries where the, the rate hikes is strengthening our dollar and – I, we mentioned it last time where other currencies are weakening and other countries are having to react to that. Yeah, because we've raised rates faster than any other country, which has made our dollar strong against other countries, which, again, I think bodes us well for inflation in the U.S. because we import a lot of goods. Yep. And with a strong dollar, that drives down the price of those goods or the cost of those goods to us as Americans. But since we've raised the, the interest rates here so much faster than the rest of the world, that's put pressure on the rest of the world, which is what you're you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're reacting by having to raise their cash levels as well in their local yeah. currency to to defend. That's that's called a currency defense. But if you're owning U.S. Treasuries and you're you're a Chinese bank, you can convert those treasure, U.S. dollar denominated Treasuries into a lot more Chinese yen, mm-hmm. which you need to do. Which is maybe on purpose because that's bringing up our yield across different durations there. Mm-hmm. So the cost of being right and the cost of being wrong, um, and you correlate this a little bit with, I think what we're in right now is kind of being compared to as the 70s, but you also have some data on comparing what we're going through is more of the 90s. So let's talk a little bit about cost of being right, cost of being wrong, and then what is this sort of market environment seemingly similar to in the history books? Yes, at this point, I I would 
compare more to the 90s with the information we got. Again, mm. things can get worse than they, they are, but the market's already priced in Ukraine. The market's already priced mm. in high inflation, as Chris and I started off with, right? Um, CPI wasn't a surprise, even though it got worse. Uh, <clears throat> so the 90s is different from the 70s, where, yes, we had a recession in the 90s, and no one refers to that historically because it was just a blip. Um, yeah. Uh, credit was still flowing, and I think that's the key. Uh, relative to 2008, 2009, credit just stopped for a good reason because we had mm-hmm. all these bad borrowers out there, right? And banks simply had no taste to lend out, right? So liquidity dried up. We're in a situation where the banking seniors, as a result of 2009, 2008, where they, they were raised. We have very little subprime, even in the auto industry. Yeah. So. We won't see a apocalyptic collapse that was caused by us <clears throat> in this particular environment because credit is strong and credit standards and lending standards have never been higher. So unless we get massive, massive job loss, which could happen, which is probably not going to happen, um, we might see a de- degradation in credit. And I point to credit because the more severe recessions that we've studied throughout history – the more severe ones were a lack of credit. Look at the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Look at uh, the 1970s, right? Look at 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. and versus the pandemic, 2020. Mm-hmm. Credit was easy. Credit how, was easy. Yeah, we were to finance our house. It took us two weeks. Mm-hmm. That's how fast it was. So, so availability of money is really key here. So that's why I think um, 90s was more apt comparison. Another uh, thing is looking at technically, right? Uh, again, just to be clear, we don't really ascribe to technical analysis. We're more fundamental-based investors. But if you look at historically in bear markets, uh, we have a chart going back to 1946. And guess when most bear markets end? Again, bear market is 20% down from the top, which is obviously we're in. You tell me. Well, it's coincidentally, it's in October, right? October, the majority of bear markets bottom in October. What we mean by bottom is they're done going down. And at this point, we're not saying guaranteed upside from here, but it's a pretty good time to invest. This is a really interesting chart, so let me try to unpack this for uh, for everybody that's listening. So this chart uh, actually says that markets have never – so this is since World War II. Um, markets have never bottomed in January. Okay. Um, the, they've only once bottomed in April, twice bottomed in May, twice bottomed in June, so on and so forth. But the lion's share uh, – Eight, seven, and six. This is the Dow Jones, the S and P, and the Nasdaq, all in October. Hmm. Maybe this goes into our next question on how uh, how how elections potentially affect markets. But this is just interesting. It it doesn't even it actually doesn't make sense. Is is the real thing? Yeah, yeah. That's why uh, we don't really ascribe to technical analysis. <laughs> but that's a fun chart because yeah, yeah. When the we mean the line share. This is like a four X difference yeah. in terms of. When the market reached its bottom, it didn't go further down from there, right? And that's so huh. such an important number because we we've 
shown data, right, mm-hmm. and shown charts that that bottoms or near bottoms have the best updates. That's what we're looking yep. for, right? You go back to the World War II. Yeah, that's plenty of points in history where October to me seemed like the worst month. Um, Black Monday was in October, right? Uh, the the 2008 crash was started in October, where where I I don't know financially these these historical points always seem to hit in October. Well, and, and you're comparing this to more of a 90s recession. Uh, well, I shouldn't use that word because maybe we're not there yet, but who knows. Um, anyway, comparing to the 90s recession relative to data now, the market's pulled back, uh, what is that, 22% or so? 18% rec- was the bottom. 18, thanks. And then recovered, and then I just see a bunch of little maybe 5 6% pullbacks, which is common. We experience a number of those throughout every single year, you know, 3 to 5 uh, until 94, where the market went down a whopping maybe 9%. So, um, you know, the, the, the point is consumers were on stronger footing back then and they are on strong footing now. That could be more of a correlated comparison rather than comparing these current markets to the 70s and expecting that it's going to be way, way, way worse. Of course, we won't know uh, until we know, but, um, you know, the, the Fed has acted very quickly just like they did in the 90s to try to stamp down inflation. And, you know, uh, it seems to be working. We are seeing signs of the the progress of the economy in terms of prices coming down and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and it's if it is a recession, which, again, there's no official or even signs of recession, you can't have a recession at 3.5% unemployment. And yeah, would- that, yeah, that seems to not jive with... Oh, things are so bad in the economy because things are bad in terms of pricing. Yeah. But things are really good in terms of employment, job security at the moment. Uh, you really can't say, at least at this point, at least with the information we're getting and how it's trending, that things will get worse. Um, again, we, we can't say with any guarantees that, that we're beyond the worst yeah things could get worse from here but like how bad mm-hmm. i just don't think yeah 70 style bad is is an apt comparison at least with the information we got now it's it's potentially an issue because the fed is watching unemployment numbers and inflation numbers and since unemployment remains very low i.e job market remains very strong they're continuing to act because they want that to pull down as well so that could actually work against us there is some data here on the good news side that uh, retail sales is starting to stagnate, which essentially says consumers are fed up with high prices. That will bring prices down. That's a good thing. Um, and we've commented on this a little bit in prior episodes. Is it seems like you know job openings are, are coming down. That's a good thing. So if labor markets start to slow and if consumers have less demand for goods, uh, you know that can bring prices down, maybe without the effect of, ton of people have to lose their jobs. We officially have to go into recession in order to pull prices down because that also will pull prices down. Maybe if consumers just stop buying as much, that will that will work. We'll have to see. Yeah. Uh, all right. This this chart here, I have to comment on this chart. It's my favorite chart that's in the deck here. Um, this is uh, recession drawdowns of the S&P 500 and price returns for subsequent years. And this dates all the way back to 1953, 
Um, so we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, not including. So we have 11 uh, official recessions here on record, uh, ranging from anything from about a 13.5% drawdown off a of prior high all the way to a 56 almost 57%, which was 2007, um, so the, the great financial crisis. And then we have forward-looking returns uh, uh, after that point. Uh, let me just give you the averages. So the average drawdown of all of these uh, recessions is 30.6%. The average return one year after that is 43.8%, which would suggest about a year is the average recovery period from the prior low. The three-year return is 64.7%, and the five-year return is 101.3%. So coming back to our on earlier average. points, on, a on average, yeah. 1981, mm -hmm. the five-year return was almost 221%. Coming out of the great financial crisis in 2009, 175% over five years and 100% over three uh, 75% over one. So anyway, I could keep going here. Um, these are really strong forward-looking returns, and that doesn't mean that we know that we've bottomed. We'll only know that we've bottomed once we are in the future. But the point is, if we can enter the market at a 20% off, 25% off, uh, and let's say we missed the bottom by 10 or 15%, you know, things kept going down, Still, long-term, the forward-looking returns are very, very strong. Are they as good as if you clip the bottom? You know, of course, they're not quite as good. But we have to just all go out on a limb and say, if we actually invested on the exact bottom, you know, just assume that we're all not that person, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Assume that we're going to just get the average. And, and if we have an opportunity to buy in at prices that were two years ago with money that we have today, I like that trade-off, and I like that forward-looking re forward return. Yeah, I'd go out on a limb and say, yeah, our base case, though high, meaning that that's the highest probability of a repeat would be the 90s. That the market was down 19.9 percent according to this chart, and then mm -hmm. the next year was up 26. Next three years was 50, and then the next five years was nearly 100 percent return. And that's yeah. that was like a sneeze, like a sneeze of a drawback. Mm -hmm. It wasn't severe, and the reason why we don't think it's severe is looking back at the severe causes. Fifty-six um, percent down in two thousand seven. We do not have a market implosion in terms of real estate. I, I don't know how how else to say it because um, yeah, if you're p pessimistic, which we try to be, try to find reasons meaning we try to stress test our portfolios, right? And we're not uber optimistic about everything all the time. We are pessimistic to be realistic, to see what kind of stress we're putting on the plans and the portfolios, right? We try to break our our, our investments. Yeah. That's part of stress testing. And we can't find a reason internally where we would suffer through a 2007 type of event or even a 70s type of event, it it just, at least w with the information we're getting right now. I mean, we, we have to do that from a portfolio building standpoint, right? We have to be yeah. optimistic on certain segments and pessimistic on others, but because we don't fully know which of those outcomes is going to happen, that's why we, in effect, barbell, 
right? It's like if we were always optimistic, we would never buy bonds because bonds over the long term don't do as well as stocks. <laughs> but we have to own some bonds for the the inevitable drawdowns, whether that be a 5% or a 30% drawdown, because bonds historically hold up a little bit better than that, right? So we have to have both of these approaches. And the key with diversification is not always earning the highest rate of return. It's always having components of the market that did earn the highest rate of return. Uh, and that little sliver of your portfolio that's constantly winning, um, by spreading your money out, you have a little bit of all of those winners at all times. Exactly. And I know it's a bit of a cop-out because we didn't really answer what if we're right, what if we're wrong. Well, how do you know? Right? And that's why we diversify. We barbell the way we do because we yeah. don't know. There's no way to know. Nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah, what does Nick Murray say? The uh, the the best the best uh, analyst in this market is the best guesser. The best forecaster is the best guesser or something. Because you're really just guessing. Ah, you know. But but I think for us, you know, we we try to bring what we think is a real approach, which is long term things go the right direction. As long as you're well diversified, you'll be okay. Um, and I that, that'll never be in the headlines because well, it's boring and no one would click on that. But uh, it's true. That's that's how it works. So, yes. yes. All right. So, again, good news there uh, and good news with consumers possibly. Well, they're able to cushion the blow of inflation because consumers are on pretty strong footing, but also that they're pulling yep. back some of their buying. That could help or should help inflationary pressures because businesses simply don't really have a reason right now to lower prices because things are flying off the shelf. All right, let's shift into our last topic. So um, how do midterms affect markets? Well, I think it's generally how do politics affect markets. And yeah, we yeah, should probably yeah. say, yeah, they probably don't. Um, but midterms and presidential election years, um, regardless of who wins, I know we're, we're we're pretty agnostic in who wins. Our job is to make money in all kinds of political regimes. So, but the, what the market craves is certainty. So once mm -hmm. we pass November, right, and November third, November fourth, fifth, once we get results in, who's controlling the Senate, uh, the House, and presidency? Doesn't matter. But what matters is we know who who's controlling what. And we could probably guess, we being the market, guess where a certain policy is headed. Or in a lot of cases where it's a split government, which we are expecting this midterm, we think nothing will get done. In the market world. Markets like that. Yeah, markets like that. Real world, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not, not the greatest depending on your side of the fence, but markets like and have historically, right, November results, simply because they knew they know what to expect, whether it's higher taxes. Well, corporations will adjust. Uh, lower taxes, corporations will adjust. Um, it really does not matter. They just need to know the the rules of engagement, and they'll play the game. But they need to know the rules first. I think that's so. It's interesting. It's like there's a if you can imagine a chart with sort of a, a a swinging line that says once we get through the elections, certainty is almost at its highest. 
and then certainty comes down as we get closer to the next set of elections because the unknown is well who's going to get elected and how do those policies change and then and then you know so that certainty comes down and then the elections go through and then certainty goes back up with whatever that outcome is um, and to your point how markets historically like gridlock in politics um, because then things don't get done I know that doesn't, that sounds kind of strange yeah um, but if when you when you contrast historically, which maybe we'll do this in a in a couple of years of the next presidential election or something, we can contrast market returns uh, with who's controlling House, Senate, and presidency. Um, generally speaking, when it's split, um, that bodes better better market returns uh, because then one party can't uh, you know essentially ram through a whole bunch of different initiatives. Uh, Interesting, yeah, good, bad, or indifferent. It, it, we're here to just report simply uh, how do markets react to this type of thing. Yeah, Bloomberg has a chart here, which is pretty bold and a bit of a shock to me. The S&P has always been higher one year after a midterm vote. Always. 100%. So, well, we've said yeah. that on here before, though. <laughs> yeah, we said, probably, we said, some, we said it's always done this before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's why I say it's bold because, yeah, this this is such a weird year. But historically speaking, when have we not had a perfect year where things went smoothly, especially in an election year? And the, the incoming party is trying to bring down the, the incumbents. Sure. Right? They're going to they're gonna hype up a lot of the things that are going wrong. And I, I'd be willing to guess that if I were to go back all these midterm years – Obama did this, Trump did this, uh, Bush did this, uh, Clinton did that, right? And it was always the other party throwing their darts at the the party in power. So, yeah, I think that record will probably be broken one year. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. this year, but um, mm -hmm. if this any year were to do it, it would probably be this year, the post-pandemic year, where none of the rules seem to seem to fly. Because, Gosh. yeah, it's so unique. Well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, I like this chart here. The S&P has always been positive one year always. after the vote. Um, it's kind of a distribution of returns for our listeners here. And, and it, it, you know, day zero, which is the, the, the midterm elections day, and then post goes all the way to 365 post, 365 pre. And this line just trends up. Um, it's always been positive a year after. That's crazy. Yeah, we, we just said this <laughs> no no rule is gonna be a hundred percent guarantee, but you look at consumer confidence. Look at post recession. Mm -hmm. Which is which is low, returns. which means it's a good time yeah. to invest. Yeah. Look at election years. Look at October, which again, I wouldn't invest simply because the calendar said October, but you know what I mean. Prices have prices are lower. The market's giving us a bit of a discount here. 25% to be clear. Yeah. Why not take advantage of it? And oh, that October yeah, we, thing doesn't make sense to me, but yeah. Hey. Yeah. We're October 19th. So we typically record on a Friday, but, uh, Wednesday it is just so everyone knows what reference points we're making. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting that, um, well, I'll say this. It is, I think, going out of limb, more likely that a year from today that markets are positive, not positive absolute, but positive from the point that they are now in this year because they're already so far down. 
Um, and so probably, again, you heard it here first. I've been wrong before. We'll be wrong again in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because things are, are down, likely at some point the market finds bottom. Maybe it already did and then starts going forward, which would mean a year from today, it's more likely that we see positive returns than we did in, in you know, say, December of last year. And it's just like how the media, um, you know, the media, every year that we don't have an official recession, they say, well, the odds of recession have gone up. The odds of recession have gone up because we get one approximately every seven years. Yeah. So every year we don't get one, well, we are more likely to get one that following year. Um, so again, scary headlines, but ultimately, um, yeah, let's just see where things are in a year. That's interesting. Yeah, well, again, the best time to invest is when there's blood in the streets. And I can't think of a scenario that sounds where, so bad. Yeah, there's been more blood in the streets, right? Consumer sentiment is down. Inflation is looking persistent. The Fed is giving us no daylight with good reason. And yeah. But look at unemployment. Look at consumer debt. Look at the consumer strength. How strong are Americans in terms of finances? If if you think things are bad, yeah, another shoe could drop that we just aren't seeing. But everything I mentioned is temporary. Consumer confidence vacillates. It moves up and down. Mm -hmm. What happens when consumer confidence moves up? You're too late, right? We've, we've proven yep. that if you invest when consumer confidence is high, your, your expected returns are single digits, like 4%. Yep. Right? you got to invest when consumer confidence is low, when things are bad. And personally, yeah, the, my best investments have always come from, like, when my stomach just couldn't handle it at the time when I clicked buy. Mm -hmm. And that's something to be said where buy low is just so much easier said than done. But this is buy low. This is it. And I've challenged everyone through the newsletters that that this is the best time to buy. But it's hard. It's very hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have today. So thanks. This was fun. Uh, I had some good data on this one. So looking forward to the next two episodes where we're going to unpack more actionable investment items, actionable financial planning items, uh, and cover a bunch of those things in details over the next, uh, probably do it in two episodes because it'll be, there'll be a lot of technical stuff we'll talk about there. So, all right. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care, everyone.